Welcome to Writers' Festival Radio. My name is Sean Wilson. I'm the Artistic Director of the Ottawa International Writers' Festival. We're broadcasting from the unceded and unsurrendered territory of the Algonquin Anishinaabe, and it gives me great pleasure to welcome you to the podcast. Our official bookseller is Perfect Books on Elgin Street, but wherever you are right now, there's an independent bookseller nearby who would be more than happy to sell you some great books. Today, Edward Rutherford returns with his latest bestseller, China, the Novel, for a conversation with Janet Somerville, author, educator, and reviewer of historical fiction for the Toronto Star. Janet's acclaimed book, Yours for Probably Always, Martha Gellhorn's Letters of Love and War, 1930-1949, has recently been released in an audio edition narrated by the outstanding Ellen Barkin, which is available wherever you get your audiobooks. Here's Janet Somerville in conversation with Edward Rutherford. Born in the Cathedral City of Salisbury, England, Edward Rutherford is the internationally best-selling novelist whose richly imagined epics include Sarum, Paris, London, New York, and the Rebels of Ireland. His books have been translated into 20 languages. Today, he's joining me to talk about his new novel, China, that is framed by the mid-19th century Opium War and the Boxer Rebellion at the cusp of the 20th century. I'm Janet Somerville. Welcome, Edward. I'm so delighted to have this opportunity to speak with you today. Would you mind starting us off by reading a little passage? I'd be delighted. Um, What I'm going to do, if I may, is just introduce the passage so that it makes sense. It'll be quite short. Um, uh, China in the... uh, in the mid-19th century, had for about 200 years been uh, pretty much a closed society, certainly to the West. Uh, There was one little place at what the West called Canton where they could trade, but otherwise they could not get in. And the, the British in particular wanted China tea. This was in the days before India tea. And as so often, one simple commodity can change history. In order to get tea, they had to pay for it with silver. And there being somewhat of a a silver shortage at that time worldwide, they discovered that they could take opium, which was grown, I may say, by the East India Company in India, and sell it to Chinese smugglers who would pay them in silver then they used the silver to buy the tea. So my Brit, trader, John Trader, who's neither a good man nor a bad man, because I don't really do good guys and bad guys, but he's doing a bad thing, which is selling opium. And here he is in the year 1839, about to embark on his first passage to the shores of China, Uh, He's there because he is in love with an aristocratic Scottish girl and he needs to make a fortune fast so that he can marry her. China seas, a warm night, a light breeze, oily slicks of cloud lay along the horizon and above them a silver quarter moon hung among the stars. The China seas could be treacherous, terrible, during the monsoons, 
But tonight the black water parted smooth as lacquer under the clipper's bow. The cargo, stowed below in 500 mango wood chests, a hundred of them traders, a large part of his wealth, was also black. Opium. Now on this vessel, we have both uh, John Trader, we have the captain, and we have a strange fellow, a large Dutchman, and he is a missionary. John Trader glanced towards the missionary, whose snores had just grown loud. Tell me, he asked the captain, do you always bring a missionary? Usually, they speak the lingo, need him to translate. And they don't mind the opium business? The captain smiled. You'll see. They caught sight of the coast half an hour after dawn, a small headland to the west that soon vanished again, then nothing until mid-morning when more coastline began to appear. It was an hour later when Trader saw the square sails coming towards them. The captain went to shake the missionary awake. Rise and shine, Van Buskirk. We've got customers. Trader watched. The large Dutchman, once awake, moved with surprising speed. For under an awning, from under an awning, he grabbed two large wicker baskets and opened them. One contained cheaply bound books. The other was full of pamphlets in colored paper wrappers. Then he came onto the wheel. Bibles? Asked Trader. Gospels and Christian tracts. In Chinese, of course, printed in Macau. To convert the heathen? That is my hope. Strange way to convert people, said Trader, off the side of an opium vessel. If I could preach the gospel ashore, sir, without being arrested, I should not be aboard this ship, the big man replied. The Dutchman goes to the side. The pirates or smugglers come up. The Dutchman turns to Trader. I have your assurance that the cargo is all packed and Benares, no loose malware cakes, all practically properly packed, tight in balls, said John, top quality. Will you trust me to negotiate the prices? The missionary asked. He saw John hesitate. It will be better that way. That's how the, amazingly, how the Protestant missionaries uh, got their tracts into China. They weren't very happy about it. And in due course, thanks to the opium wars, they were able to get access to China. That is tremendous. I, I'm just thinking, I'm sort of drifting away here, listening to you read those passages. And it occurs to me a few things about the pieces that you selected. Um, first thing, that, that piece that opens that chapter called Opium in, in March of 1839, um, hmm. It's poetic, you know, and it it helps you to just lose yourself into that place and to stand beside trader in that in that moment. But also in that um, short passage there, there's the mention of uh, lacquer, and I, I and I didn't notice this the first time I read it, but I'm I'm just noting it now that 
lacquer plays such a significant part in in the narrative as it unfolds. And uh, so I'm thinking, how clever of you to have done that, Edward, to have um, put that there. And um, I was also interested in the tension between um, the missionaries and the British traders uh, throughout the novel. I mean, there's, there's the professional tension because the traders require the missionaries in order to serve as translators with the, yeah. with the Chinese locals. Mm. But also, trader has a very personal tension with, with uh, <laughs> certain mission, missionaries, in two of them, right? A cousin and that, yes. that cousin's son. And um, to have this planted so early in the novel, uh, and maybe it's only something you can see looking back, having gotten to the end of it. I think you know that it's well. May I, may it's I amusing to me. Yeah, may I pick up something you've said there? Um, sure. Because actually, uh, you ask you you ask me no doubt about how how one structures uh, books, but you know that little use of the word lacquer was not by chance. Um, one tries, especially when you've got such a big complex entity as these books. Uh, have to be because of all the ground they cover it's a little bit like a musician or an architect you have to sew little light motif and echoes and things that can't be repeated without being intrusive i wonder if i might just read the almost the end of the book because it it happens to speak to exactly this point yes Um, that would be wonderful many years later many many years later right at the end of the century after returning for reasons that the book explains to China and having his last uh, great and unexpected and very dangerous adventure, John Trader, who's almost 90 years old, is going to return home through Macau, uh, which is a kind of magical place. And it was um, for him when he was, you know, first there as a much younger man. It right? was. He had an affair, he had an affair there. there. Yes. And uh, funnily enough, for personal reasons, a some slightly magical place uh, for me. So here he is uh, just about to uh, embark on the voyage back to uh, Britain in those same waters. Once again, the ship plowed its way towards Macau. Most of the passengers were on deck. for It was a sunny day and the view across the island with the gleaming facade of St. Paul's high on its hill was splendid indeed, but John Trader wasn't on deck. He'd been getting sick before he got on the boat, and he'd known it. But it didn't matter. Everybody was safe. It was the right time to leave. The ship's doctor came into his cabin. He was a good, sensible man in his forties, an Irishman, O'Grady by name. He looked at Trader seriously. I've got to put you off, you know. Why? You've got pneumonia. I know that. Fresh air and sun on Macau may save you. I want to stay here. I can't answer for you. No, but you can bury me. And see, that's what you want? How long shall we be here at Macau? asked Trader. Two days. I'll sit on deck in the sun for one of them, if it's fine. And it was fine, and he did. And then the ship left on the evening of the second day, after dark, and he made his way with difficulty back to his cabin and collapsed on his bed. As he lay there, he thought, 
if I hadn't come down with pneumonia, I'd be buried in Scotland. But he didn't want that. Where would he have chosen to be buried then, if on land? He couldn't think of anywhere. Not with the life he'd had. There was no turning back now. I am a man at sea, he thought. Let the sea have me. He began to sink late that night and continued to sink, watched by Dr. O'Grady, while the night grew blacker, black as opium. I loved that end for Trader, and because I am such a literature nerd, it satisfied this need to bring it back to this introduction to Trader when you have um, the black, black as opium um, in that opening of, of the chapter you, you previously read here. I just, yeah. I cheered for that moment when you brought it right back to that uh, callback to that echo um, before. So I loved that. So thank you for oh, reading thank that you. part thank as you. well. I became quite attached to Trader, which surprised me um, in, in, reading, uh, in reading the book. And I think, you know, with good fiction, and I don't know whether you agree with me about this, but you lose yourself and become one with the character if you're lucky. You know, you're, you're transported into that other life and into that story. And um, you did that for me here. Well, so. thank you. Um, traders, and uh, as I say, I don't do good guys and bad guys. A trader has, as, uh, as you'll know from having kindly read the book, has a backstory. Uh, the backstory, I, I don't steal people, so to speak, but I sometimes do obviously take things that I know of, and I knew of uh, somebody who was a, a merchant actually in another country, but who had that backstory where he thought as a little boy he'd killed someone. Right. Yeah, that, and that's... what's good about that is, you see, if you're trying to get into a character, you need, you, the writer, I, uh, one needs to believe in that character. Uh, right. And so it is a help if, if you know that there's something real there when you're, when you're writing about something. The other thing I'd like to say is, you know, I, I think it's a little bit like method acting. Um, uh, you, you try to think yourself into someone. Um, and if it works, you know, you find yourself being moved. So at the moving bits of the book, I, the writer, actually am moved. And that's when it really flows, when that happens, which isn't all the time, but at the key moments. But when you it does, it you know, I, I'm just going to use the analogy of, of rowing. I, I rowed in a women's coxed four. And when everybody is pulling at the same moment, um, with the same motion, with the same angle of the blades, mm -hmm. The boat lifts, it literally lifts out of the water and you feel it. You feel, you just feel how smoothly it's running and you lose yourself. It, you, you, it, lose your you lose yourself. yourself. You just yeah, lose yourself. You and I, I just wanted to come back to something you, you mentioned too about having the hook of something real. And I think that verisimilitude, even though you've borrowed it from some other place, 
it, it rings so true uh, as you're reading, mm. right? Because you, can't, you think that can't possibly just be something made up. That's what, you know, it, it feels so, so true. My grandmother true. Was, a, was a prolific novelist. And one of the things that she was told was, you know, you must, two things really, you must believe in your characters yourself. And also that you, the writer, need to know much more about them than you necessarily express in the book. You need right. to know more, and then that will come through as authenticity to the reader, even if you write quite sparingly. It's a weird, but it is so. But but it is so, and it's essential, I think, in terms of, of process, too. You know, mm. it's just as important what gets left out as what remains. Mm. You know, you that's, feel, that's right. I think you feel kind of the... the um, as a reader, you feel the shadow of that, right? Yeah. And it makes it all the more convincing. So this is the hope. This is the hope. This is this is this is the hope. So I'm wondering if you wouldn't mind talking a little bit about structure, because in a book this size, um, I'm interested to know how uh, specifically you you structured whether you go by sort of um, chronological line that you that you know that you're going to frame it chronologically mm -hmm. and because there's so many different narrative threads how you decide you know how they're going to dovetail and come yeah. together how they're going to drive towards the, the end of the book any part anything of, like that yeah part of the um uh, part of the diff I mean, it's why these particular kind of books, because as you will well understand, I mean, a lot of this stuff is technical. Um, uh, you're trying, uh, for instance, in this case, in the case of the China book, uh, is there an intention to use a nice old fashioned lip crit, you know, yes. word about it? Uh, yes, you bet you bet there is. Um, China was hu humiliated, but why? Well, she cut herself off from the other outside world, which was a foolish thing to have done, you know? Um, and then the outside world was equally ignorant. Everybody's ignorant. Uh, and then you're dealing with a bunch of human beings, which is the humanistic point I try to... And the to fallibility of all yes, of them. Yes, exactly. I mean, I... I <laughs> Even as a writer, you know, I think one has to, it's a very good idea to admit to oneself that one doesn't, in fact, know what one is doing. Um, and with any artistic thing, you, you like losing yourself, you don't actually know what you're doing, you think you do. Um, and, you know, human beings in history, history is just made by human beings. Now, in the case of constructing something like this, you've got, as you know, this enormous and very dramatic story that starts about 1839, goes on to the start of the 20th century. Um, you've got this, this drug trade. You have enormous tensions inside China. Uh, China is, uh, is beset with frightful rebellions, like the Taiping Rebellion, and later, those smaller, the Boxer Rising. And... Um, and this is why Chinese people today, I think Chinese governments are very afraid of disorder and with good reason. And they're afraid of being humiliated with good reason because with the, the two opium wars, with taking over Chinese towns here and there, with coming to, uh, to Peking, as it was then called, to Beijing, um, and burning down the almost sacred uh, summer palace, um, and then 
And that's an astonishing moment. I mean, yeah. In the and book, we'll be too, remembered, remembered so... for thousands of years, in my judgment, and certainly remembered by ordinary Chinese today. Um, so you've got all of that, and you've got the cross currents, which is, you know, you've got Manchu rulers who have a clan-like uh, sort of culture, and you have the traditional Chinese who don't altogether like their rulers, uh, who, were, who came from, from the north above the Great War at that time in history. Um, you know, you, you've got uh, missionaries trying to come in, you've got traders and so on. Uh, all these enormous cross currents. And so you have to choose characters that represent each of those and then show how they were conflicted human beings. Um, and you put all that together. The difficulty actually with this book was that the events of the opium wars in particular were so complicated that without, I try not to misrepresent history, but actually cobbling them together into some sort of organic order for a novel uh, was extremely difficult. And that's the main difficulty of quite a lot of my novels. And I, I hope I make a decent job of it, but um, that's what takes the time. Oh, I would think so. Um, and there's, it's so richly detailed, you know, I, my knowledge of China is limited to the literature I've read, mostly contemporary stories that were set um, either during uh, the early Second World War years or sort mm -hmm. of 20 years before that. And mm -hmm. so I was aware of certain things like, so when we see second son and one of his sons being recruited by an American oh, yeah. uh, railroad company yeah. yeah, to help build the railroad and mm -hmm. to go to Gold Mountain, you know, mm -hmm. as so many Chinese, young Chinese men did. Uh, that, was, that was familiar to me. Um, and the notion of foot binding, which is just so devastating to contemplate um, I was aware of, of that as well and how that's uh, connected to class and ideas, twisted ideas of beauty that are based on torture yeah. and that, you know, it's done with young well, girls, well, you know? Yeah. How but was that see... writing for you to, <laughs> to write about that? Because it's, it's, it's so yeah. upsetting to read about, but it's authentic. Oh, it's authentic, all right. And of course, if you were if you were a peasant working in the fields, you probably did not have your feet bowed, um, you know, because it would just make your life too difficult. But if you if you were a very beautiful peasant, like one of the characters is, then your family might hope to find you uh, a, a husband, if you're lucky, or you know, somebody, some rich merchant whose concubine you might become and get yourself a much better life. But in order to achieve that, you would almost certainly need to have your feet bound. And that's part of the story. Um, as one of the English, well, actually it's- And what's interesting, quite, I just want to stop yeah. you there for a second too. I yeah. want to say something about Bright Moon who ends up having her feet bound. Um, what's interesting to me in her character, what you've done with her character is she is very independent. Right, so you have the, the tension of her having to succumb to these wishes of her mother and her grandmother and having the binder from the village come and 
yeah. um, torture her. You have that juxtaposed with the fact that she's um, she's a very independent thinking young little girl and and young woman. And I I, I found that interesting. Well, that, that's a dichotomy that um, uh, if you have some Chinese friends, which I'm fortunate enough to have. <laughs> <laughs> on the one hand, you will find they have an amazing obedience towards their family, their, you know, their parents. On the other hand, if you think they're not independent, forget about it. <laughs> it's That's true in my experience as well. <laughs> Personal experience, yes. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Well, but I, 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 I was very happy that Bright Moon was so indefatigable in, yeah. in the way that she presented herself to the world. Well, at the end of the day, you see, so was her, without giving the plot away, so was her mother. Oh, her mother, absolutely. But her mother, I think, in a way that is more inclined to sacrifice, mm. right? In a way that Bright Moon, I, I don't think, is somebody who would sacrifice herself in any way. But her mother, and I don't yes. think I'm giving that away by saying that no, that her no. mother, um, Mei Ling, uh, yeah. Sac chooses to sacrifice herself. She's, but she's very pragmatic about it. Absolutely, you know, absolutely pragmatic about it. Yeah, yeah. So, is there anything else you'd like to comment about? Oh, um, yeah, sure. Um, also, I mean, uh, it was uh, uh, the most fun I had. As I've, I've said that it was difficult. Of course, these books are difficult, uh, but that doesn't mean the author doesn't have any fun. Um, <laughs> One of the great difficulties um, about this, technically, is figuring out or trying to discover what happened inside the Forbidden City, the, in you know the the court. Um, and um, there's a lot being written on this, uh, a great deal based on the writings of a man called Edmund. He writes his name Backhouse, but he actually pronounced it Bacchus. <laughs> which is rather appropriate. That's yeah. interesting, isn't it? Yeah. The God and of Wine. So he he produced this un unbelievably scandalous account of what went on inside the court of Cixi, that's the dragon empress who ruled China for so long. Yes. Um, who figures and, uh, significantly in the back half of this book. Indeed. And yes. the other authors have been using him as a reliable source for decades and then suddenly in the middle of the 20th century it became apparent that what he said might not be the truth and some of his stories are, I'm absolutely convinced are impossible they're also so indecent that um, my editor my editor made me take some of them out of the book for which I, I apologize to my readers, but there, there it is. Decency had to well, be observed. And, and Bacchus uh, has uh, a role in this book too. Of I, I, put, I couldn't resist. I don't yes. want to give it all away, but yeah. No, I no, no, no. Resist. But he is, I he does put figure. him in there. I put him in there. Um, but uh, I had to figure out, you see, how am I going to tell the story of the court if I'm not absolutely certain because nobody is? what went on there day to day. And the way to do it was to have a first person narrator. Was because have, then you have the unreliable, the maybe reliable, but maybe not reliable narrator. And the only person really, the, the logical person would have been a eunuch because that, those are the only men 
who lived inside the forbidden city. So then you have the problem, you know, well, the stock figure of the eunuch, you know, is well known and he's kind of effeminate and this and that. And then I discovered in my research that a few of the eunuchs, not many, had in fact not been castrated until after they had married and had children. And they did it to get money at the court because you could with the pickings, you know, all the perquisites, you could do well there. And so then I had my character and he falls in love with the empress. Um, he's got a wife and two children. In fact, he, he goes there to save them because his little boy is going to die for lack of medicine he can't afford. Um, and then the other eunuchs don't entirely like him because they're jealous. Now, if you wanted to, it's, it's, um, it's the ugly duckling syndrome. If you want to describe what a duck's like, and they're not particularly interesting in and of themselves, you see, then you put an ugly duckling in the middle who's really a swan. And then they, that, that you've created a tension and then you learn about both sides of the equation, as it were, and you get a very good idea of the unit's life while following the outsider who's being who's getting, having a bad time right. and who's also and in they... love with a major historical character. And that's how I created the man called Lacanale. And then the fun was I had to find a voice for him so that I could really, really believe in him. And there was, he's no longer with us, sadly, anymore, but there was, um, in rural England, a certain book bookseller. Um, and I took his voice. And then I had Lacanale. Oh, how fabulous. <laughs> and Lacanale, you know, he he's so engaging and he wants to, you can see that he's motivated to do what's right by his family, you know, that's, Absolutely. and the stakes are highest because his young son could die. That's and right. so you get to this notion, you know, his sacrifice, his sacrifice isn't just for himself, right? His, his sacrifice, what he physically sacrifices for himself mm-hmm. is one thing, but, um, what he sacrifices uh, emotionally mm-hmm. it's um the stakes are high for him very and very. and, and I, remember the the woman that he's in love with uh, other than his wife uh, you know this uh, uh, who of course he cannot sort of even physically touch but this this strange uh, empress concubine says she who came to rule china um she herself remember is always actually, or for much of the time, in the threat of her own life. She's in huge danger for most of her life. So the two of them share that. And they understand each other. Uh-huh. Uh, there's a bond between them, even though it's an unspoken bond, there is that bond be- between them, psychologically, yeah. right? Absolutely. They... Um, Yes. Yes, and he he really is in a way her confidant. Um because who else yes, can she doesn't she always trust? tell him she doesn't always tell him everything. You see there's a point later in the book where this piece of information he isn't given 
but right. she gets there in the end. She gets there in the end. Right. And she is also something else, you see. He is the archetypal man who loves Chinese culture. He loves the Chinese art. He loves everything about it. He sees a spirituality in it. He and sees beauty. a permanence and beauty. And beauty. And he's ready to sacrifice his life for that as well. Yes. So that that's a way one hopes, at least, of, I mean, okay, it's as I see it, but, you know, what can I do? Um, it, it's my way of attempting to suggest how compelling that culture might have been for the people in it. And he, he was absolutely enthralled himself from the time he was learning how to make lacquer for those decorative boxes, mm -hmm. you know, something that plays a significant part in, in the narrative, mm -hmm. to the silk he sees uh, his mentor wearing, the, the, um, the other eunuch who actually yes. had had children himself and who be was mm -hmm. um, a oh, merchant. Yes, yes indeed. Right. Um, and there's, there's, there, you know, there's, there's so many different motifs, but, you know, you have disguise, you have, we haven't even talked about Neo, the no, little the brother who, yes. uh, who, you know, does whatever he needs to do and goes back and forth from side to side. You never really know where his allegiance yeah. lies. And that was, that was so, that was so from all the accounts we have, and we have, there's quite a lot, you know, uh, from, for the, the, the coastal, certainly the Cantonese, uh, coastal Chinese. I mean, those guys didn't really care about the emperor very much. No, uh, well, they, they had to they survive. They took their shilling. Yeah, that's right. They had to survive, and but also you have him helping um, Mei Ling, who he considered his big sister, even though they were not actually related, because mm -hmm. she had taken care of him when she, when he was younger. She had looked out for him yes. when he was younger. So you know, on, on a human level, mm -hmm. they the characters. Well, it's, neat. it's neat because the Chinese, you know, have their own way of saying that people are related and it's almost all through the male line. So you and I would say that Neo and uh, Mei Ling, actually, I say, I say Neo rather than Neo, but never mind yes. that, um, that, that they were related, but they were related on uh, the female side. Um, and so there's a slight sort of tension there, you see, because to, to the family she's married in, they don't really think she is related. Correct, uh, because him. it's so paternalistic. Exactly so. Yes, yep. yeah, and that's what yeah. makes that's what makes Cersei really interesting because she's the one with all of the power. Yes, right. This well, woman, she gets it. She gets who it. was she the number power. one concubine of the emperor, mm -hmm. who gave birth to his son, who was mostly useless <laughs> once once he came. You know, once he was on the throne. And then she gets to pick the succession. You know, but you know, as well, we were talking about we were talking we were talking about characters. Um, but I, what I one of the fun bits, you know, is some of the people that make uh, just brief appearances in, in on or off stage. Um, I mean, I had no idea, obviously, till I did the research on this. I loved the fact 
that the very honorable Chinese uh, Mandarin uh, called Commissioner Lin, who, who comes down to try to stop the opium trade. Yes. Um, and he's a well-meaning man. And the Chinese are used to telling the few nations they know who are close to them how to behave. So he writes actually not one, but several letters to Queen to Victoria. Queen Victoria. And did that uh, actually happen? Her. Oh, yes. Oh, absolutely. Instructing her how to, you know, uh, that she shouldn't be letting her merchants do this, does she know? Of course, she didn't know, probably. And you can be quite sure that though the letter was sent, in fact, too, um, you know, nobody ever showed it to the Queen because uh, she probably would have objected. Um, well, but how I was, that was fun. And, and how the was the use of not, laudanum then in England? Oh, widespread. Right, and so they needed keeping, the opium. Yeah, you you know the child crying would be given a little laudanum, but it is a it is, a, it is a, you know a sort of gentle medicine like that. But of course, it's also vastly addictive. And there you go. And mm -hmm. um, some of our greatest poets, of course, were addicted to it. Right. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Right. And I, uh, and uh, I, I loved also a, a great British hero, two great British heroes. One, Gladstone, uh, who invade against uh, the opium business in Parliament. He later became Prime Minister. Um, he was a tremendous mo moralist, but he did also conveniently forget that all his money came from his grandfather, who was in the slave trade. Right. And so you similarly, have the delightful, the delight, you know what's coming now, the delightful discovery I made which is that one of the few Americans who was really in this opium trade in China, there were several, but one of the principal ones was a man called Delano. Yes. And Delano left a big fortune, a lot of kids actually, but anyway, um, his grandson, are we ringing a bell, was none other than FDR, Franklin. Mm -hmm. Franklin Delano Roosevelt. Mm -hmm. Uh, and so on. <laughs> yes, and so on. There are so many delicious um, facts there for students of, of history to, to savor. I'm just being mindful of our time here, Edward, yeah. and we've already talked for 40 minutes. So I'm wondering if um, we, did we did get to talk about lacquer now, so I'm happy about, about that. But I'm wondering if you just give just a moment's thought to the setting itself, because to me, the setting is really character here. We have Beijing, Canton, yes. Calcutta, the Summer Palace, Yellow River, Macau. I'll give you a quick one uh, to make it brief. Beijing, or Peking, as they would have said, is where the, and you get the sense of it now, at least on a clear day, of where the, the emperor under those golden roofs, you know, in, uh, in, in the Forbidden City, huge golden gleaming roofs, where the emperor is very, very close to heaven. And that's how he was seen. Uh, in Canton, which is Guangdong, of course, uh, you get the meeting of two worlds, the only interaction until later on between the, you know, the West and, uh, and uh, China. Um, the Yellow River is China from the very, very beginning. Um, 
we explain in, why, in the book why it's called uh, the Yellow River. Yes. There's a good and physical reason. Yes. Uh, but the thing about the Yellow River is this. A, a, a great legendary emperor far in the past is reputed to have tamed the river, uh, used it for irrigation, you know, put um, whatever uh, sort of uh, uh, buildings when the uh, building was needed to contain the river within its banks. And over time, uh, all that work was not kept up. And the Yellow River hugely floods periodically, especially in the 19th century. And uh, there's a big flooding scene, naturally, there had to be, mm-hmm. uh, the Great Flood of 1887. A, devast- a devastating uh, scene. Devastating, and with hundreds of thousands of people losing their lives each time this happens. And the river even changes its course. But the Yellow River is traditional China, and, you know, that flooding is a, emblematic, if you will, of the flooding, uh, of the, the enormous danger of revolution and revolt and disquiet amongst the people of China. So you see the you've got the Yellow River like an emblem for the Taiping uh, Rebellion, which uh, killed millions, we don't know how many, millions of people. Mm-hmm. And that sort of and ebb and flow goes vibrant through Chinese. Yeah, that ebb and flow, I would suggest, is, you know, goes through Chinese history right up to the present day. And I, I found that this, this 19th century tale, uh, I thought was a useful concept. Uh, if you want to understand China today, which is a different place, but contains so much of its past and so many memories from that century, I think it's a very good thing if we understand the 19th century as well. It, it certainly helps to understand what it's like there now, I think. The, yeah. You know, by studying what's, what happened in the 19th century, it, it really informs how things are now mm. in China. Yeah. Yeah. So before we say goodbye, I was hoping we'd each maybe flag a couple of books that we've read recently or enjoyed recently to lift up some some other writers. Do you have then I, I will start. May I start? Please. This is not a new book, but I keep it on my desk and it's important to me. Uh, the writer who was an American, uh, emeritus professor of philosophy at Stanford called John Perry. And the book has the most wonderful title that anybody, especially writers and journalists, you know, could hope for. It's called The Art of Procrastination, A Guide to Effective Dawdling, Lollygagging, and Postponing. And it explains to us why it's a very good idea to procrastinate. For creativity. uh, It's cleverer than, yes, but actually it's kind of clever. It's, it's, It's clever sort of management consultancy stuff. Um, but I so I keep that on my desk as a vade mecum all the time. <laughs> uh, what am I reading at the moment? Well, I'll tell you what I'm doing. Um, I'm actually rereading. Uh, it's quite short, as you will know, a book called The Remains of the Day. Oh, beautiful! By Ishiguro. 
Uh, and um, uh, I'm enjoying rereading it very much. I'm nearly done. And um, then I shall be starting a book which is just published by Kazuo Ishiguro, uh, which is called Clara and the Sun. I wanted to lift up, uh, Michaela Carter has a new novel out and it's called Leonora in the Morning Light. And it's about Leonora Carrington and Max Ernst and their creative lives together. And it involves his imprisonment in the Uh, south of France. And then Peggy Guggenheim comes to help them escape out of Europe into into America. But it's so richly uh, influenced by both of their art. And so you have the making of their art uh, as well as, as the narrative itself. So I love that Leonora in the morning light. And it's, it it was out last month, I think. And another one called the dictionary of lost words. And it's a debut novel by a woman named Pip Williams. And um, it's sort of the distaff version of the making of the Oxford English dictionary. And it, it calls into question who gets to tell the story and, and how and why. And it's just so brilliantly done because she imagines giving voice to the most disenfranchised at the time, which um, were the working women, you know, people who were in service um, in the 19th century. So fascinating. And it also goes through how they actually made the Oxford English Dictionary. And um, I found it thoroughly engrossing and absolutely, absolutely loved it. So we'll hope hope, um, people will reach out for some of those titles as well. But I want to say in closing, this has been an absolute delight. And for everybody listening, I hope you'll consider requesting China from your local library or buying it from your favorite independent bookstore. Thanks again, Edward. I I had such a wonderful time chatting with you. I much enjoyed it. Thank you so much. That was Janet Somerville in conversation with Edward Rutherford about his new bestseller, China. As always, I want to thank you for supporting authors and booksellers through these difficult times. It's always a good idea to buy a book, and of course, you can't go wrong supporting local independent booksellers. Our spring season runs through June, and it's all available online at writersfestival.org, so all you need to do to connect with some of the world's most acclaimed authors is click play. If you enjoy the podcast or any of our virtual programming, please consider making a charitable donation. Your financial support will allow us to continue to bring you the world's most interesting authors and thinkers. I want to thank the Ottawa Public Library, the Government of Canada, the Government of Ontario, the City of Ottawa, the Ontario Arts Council, the Canada Council for the Arts, Carleton University, and CBC for their ongoing support. This podcast is produced by Aaron Flynn. Original music and sound engineering by Mike Dubé. Kira Harris is our program director. And I'm your host, Sean Wilson. Thank you for listening. <laughs>